So let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this, uh, this day and just for uh, the chance to pause in the middle of the week and gather together with brothers and sisters in Christ and uh, just reflect on your word to learn from it, to grow by it, to strengthen our faith the more we know about you. Lord, help us to always be mindful of your incredible matchless grace in our lives and to champion grace and never let any uh, theology or theological system diminish your grace in any way. And so, Lord, we give you this uh, time tonight. Lord, we do want to lift up um, one of our own, Deborah, tonight as she's in the hospital with severe back pain. And we just pray that you would comfort her and be with Nick also and the doctors as they try to figure out uh, what's going on with her. And so, Lord, we just uh, lift up this time now and give it to you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we are uh, talking about what is Calvinism and is it biblical? This is actually our sixth in this series. And as I mentioned uh, some time ago when we started, I wasn't really sure how long it's going to go because a lot of it depends on kind of what, what rabbits we chase and your questions and, and those types of things. But I'm really delighted uh, so far with how this is going. You guys have uh, been phenomenal. In fact, I get a lot of comments from people by email that listen or watch down, you know, after the fact. And they say, one of the first things they always say is, man, those were some great questions. And I always respond, yeah, but what about the teaching? That's really what I'm, <laughs> I was wondering. But no, the questions, they say, they're great. So, uh, but anyway, uh, thank you for that. And, um, and so tonight we're going to continue talking about uh, this subject and continue talking specifically about election. But let me mention a couple of resources like we always do on Wednesday nights here at the beginning. Uh, last Sunday, if you missed our annual Sedalia God and Country Day celebration, uh, you missed a, a special time. It was really a, uh, just a, a wonderful time to both thank the Lord for this country, such as it is. Obviously, you know, no one's uh, more critical than some of the things going on in our country than I am. Uh, I, I call a spade a spade. But at the same time, as I mentioned Sunday, I mean, uh, how many of you are glad you're not in North Korea or Iran or, you know, China? So we thank the Lord for the fact that we still have some freedoms here and want to pray for our country. So I, I shared a message entitled, Why America Needs the Church. And so you can check that out at notbyworks.org uh, or listen to the podcast uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. Yesterday, speaking of podcasts, was my weekly uh, appearance on Christian Underground News Network. And we talked about how should Christians respond to grief. And uh, we spent the hour just talking about biblical principles related to grief and the difference between a believer and an unbeliever in, in grief and how we handle it and so forth. So I encourage you to listen to that uh, if you get a chance. Again, just uh, anywhere you go to podcasts, uh, you can uh, find, find that or use the Not By Works app as well. Uh, and then uh, I wanted to mention that Harbinger's Daily has been such a blessing to Not By Works Ministries for the last year and a half or so. They have occasionally picked up different... Uh, speaking engagements that I've done or articles that I've written or podcasts that we've produced. Uh, but recently, uh, last week, in fact, they announced they've got a dedicated profile page and Not By Works is now one of their approved uh, ministries. And if you know anything about Harbinger's Daily, it's a fantastic uh, sort of uh, a portal for all kinds of conservative biblical theology. Now, like any compendium of different uh, authors and scholars and pastors, you're not going to agree with everything everybody says on there. That's just the nature of life. But it's definitely conservative, definitely all believe in the inerrancy of Scripture and certainly believe in the freedoms that we have. And so uh, I go to it every day and, and, and pick up a lot of great articles and information. And so 
anyway, check that out if you get the chance. Uh, so they will be posting more and more of our stuff and more of the things that we do here at Plum Creek Chapel as well. Always want to continue to remind you about Spirit of the Antichrist. We're getting closer and closer to uh, releasing Volume 2. Uh, I get more and more emails and voicemails and, and, and calls from people saying, hey, when is Volume 2 coming out? And uh, that's encouraging because we do talk about Volume 2 at the end of Volume 1 and what's, what are some of the topics we're going to address in it. Uh, but the answer to that question is October, November is our target. We feel like we're on, on, on target to achieve that goal. And so just uh, keep in touch with us either through Plum Creek Chapel here or at notbyworks.org, and we'll be announcing the launch date once we have a more firm uh, date, but it's coming along well, and I'm pretty sure I agree with everything I'm writing in it so far. So that's always good, because uh, the opposite would not be good. Uh, so with that, uh, let's uh, let's dive into this subject of election. Now, election is a topic that is clearly taught in Scripture, uh, just like dispensationalism is taught in Scripture. I got an email this morning uh, from someone who. Uh, and I, you know, this is a tired old uh, false, uh, you know, straw man that people throw up and have for many, many years now. But they said, oh, dispensationalism is this cult that was founded by uh, Darby in the 1800s based on a demon-possessed girl. And I mean, that, that has been so soundly debunked in multiple peer-reviewed academic journal articles. It's just a, a false narrative. Uh, but you still see it out there on the internet. So sometimes when people hear that me mention dispensational or dispensation or dispensationalism, uh, they do a quick search and they come up with some, you know, unstudied uh, heresy out there about it. And they, and they shoot off an email saying, oh, you know, did you know this? Well, yes, I'm aware of it, but it's very easy to debunk that. The fact of the matter is dispensation is a biblical term. It's found in Scripture. It's found in Ephesians 3, for example. Uh, it just means stewardship or economy. And it's quite clear from Genesis to Revelation, if you read Scripture in its plain, normal sense, that God has interacted with mankind with, uh, in a progressive, revelatory manner, meaning over time He gives more and more information, and mankind is responsible for that information as God reveals it to us. And as a theological system... Uh, certainly, as with all systems, including the one we're critiquing here today, Calvinism, uh, it, it, at a point in time, it kind of got some traction. It became sort of uh, crystallized and formalized, and, and that did happen in the 19th century. And it uh, kind of spread through, through the help of things like uh, the, the Bible Conference Movement, the Niagara Conferences, the Moody Conferences, the uh, Schofield Reference Bible, and other tools that the Lord used to help reconnect the lay people, just the average person in the pew, with the reality of the two-phased coming of Christ, with the reality of the distinction between God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church, with the reality of a grace-based view of salvation, and many other key biblical uh, doctrines. So definitely it got traction around that time, but we, I had to study this in my PhD studies, and we can go back in every century for the last 2,000 years of church history, every century, and we can find at least one uh, theologian, Bible scholar, church leader, who in their writings is, is espousing a two-phased return of Christ, once for the church and second time to establish the kingdom. So it's by no means new. It's not novel. Uh, in fact, uh, Calvinism is far more novel than the, the dispensational framework of Scripture because dispensationalism, as I says, goes all the way back to the first century and the writing of Scripture. That's where the term was used. And certainly the New Testament writers expected 
two different comings of Christ. We've talked about that in our 9 o'clock Bible study hour on Sundays with the distinctions between the rapture and the second coming. Rapture is also a biblical term used in the Latin translation of the Bible in 2 Thessalonians 2.17. I mean, 1 Thessalonians 4.17, sorry. Um, and so uh, Calvinism, by contrast, you know, goes back to the 16th century. You know, you can search in vain for any English translation of the Bible and you'll never find the word Calvin. <laughs> it's just not there. Uh, of course, that doesn't mean it's not accurate. There are a lot of theological terms that we use to describe biblical principles that are not found in Scripture. So I'm not suggesting that, you know, we reject Calvinism because the term's not found in Scripture. I'm just saying uh, arguments based on church history are never effective or helpful. Uh, and those who claim that, you know, the dispensational approach to Scripture is novel and only came around in the 19th century with Darby, J.N. Darby, John Nelson Darby, are just, you know, wrong and, and making weak uh, arguments. Um, we should evaluate all theological systems based on what does the Bible say. And, uh, you know, in my book, What Lies Ahead, I have a <clears throat> couple of chapters uh, explaining what dispensational theology is and what are the core tenets of it. Uh, uh, there are basically three core tenets. One is, number one, is that we believe the Bible should be interpreted in its literal, grammatical, historical approach. Pretty simple. The way all language should be understood. Secondly, that once you interpret the Bible that way, you will see a distinction between God's program for Israel and God's program for the church. In other words, the church has not replaced Israel. God is not through with Israel. He's got a future for national Israel, a literal kingdom, a literal temple, a literal throne, a literal reign of Christ on earth. Uh, and then the third is that as we read Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, we see that the, the purpose of God in interacting with human history, whether it's from the Garden of Eden through uh, Noah, through Abraham, through, the church, uh, through Israel, through the church, through the new heavens and the new earth, all the way to the end, is always to bring himself glory. It's called the doxological purpose of God. And uh, we believe that uh, that's, what, that's the unifying theme of Scripture. Whereas uh, Calvinists see the unifying theme of Scripture as election. Uh, many people like covenant theologians, which there's a lot of crossover, by the way, between covenant theology and Calvinism. Uh, but they see it, uh, the unifying theme of Scripture, as the redemption of mankind, that, that the whole purpose of God in human history is to redeem mankind. The problem with that is God created man uh, in a state that he didn't need redemption. So why did God create man? How can the unifying theme of Scripture be the redemption of mankind if at first man didn't need redemption? So there's got to be a different uh, unifying theme, a different purpose of God in human history. Uh, so... You know, as we come to election, uh, it's one of those terms that uh, I think causes a lot of arguments. People have a visceral response to it. And as I mentioned last week, and this is kind of what I think um, makes my view a little bit different than probably the majority of non-Calvinists. Um, so I don't mind being in the minority and, and admitting that right up front. But most non-Calvinists... They, they feel like it all hinges on election, and so they have to reject the notion of election. And while I appreciate where they're coming from, because after all, they're critiquing and exposing the errors of Calvinism, I cannot agree on that point, and I think you'll see why tonight, as we go through some scripture passages, I believe the Bible does teach election. Uh, I believe the Bible teaches free will, and that's what makes me different from Calvinists. The Calvinists uh, believe God only teaches election. You do not have free will, as we 
looked at the last several weeks in our discussion of total depravity. And remember, Calvinists teach that total depravity means total inability. You do not have the ability to believe the gospel. If you are not elect, you can't believe the gospel no matter how hard you try. And if you are elect, you can't reject the gospel. You're forced to believe the gospel. And I believe, as I've demonstrated the last few weeks, uh, that's in con, uh, you know, contradiction to Scripture. Um, but when we come to election, my problem is not with the term itself or even the concept that the Bible, I believe, teaches. And we're going to look at several passages. Uh, the pro- problem is with the unconditional part. Because remember, to a Calvinist, there's absolutely nothing that we have to do to be saved. And that includes believing the gospel or receiving the free gift of eternal life. And I won't rehash all of that. I know we are constantly picking up a new folks uh, on the live stream or uh, you know, watching videos. I would just encourage you to go back and watch uh, the previous uh, five sessions. Um, but uh, Calvinists absolutely believe you can't believe the gospel. You don't have to believe the gospel. Regeneration, they say, uh, you know, causes you to believe, whereas we say faith is what causes regeneration. So it's a fundamental difference, a very significant fundamental difference. As I've said uh, so many times, you're probably tired of hearing me say it, but the Bible teaches that faith is the instrumental cause of our salvation. And we're going to look at some more passages that show that again tonight. Calvinists believe regeneration is the instrumental cause of faith. Or, to put it another way, they believe that faith is the involuntary response to having been saved. You don't believe and then get saved. You get saved because you're elect, and then you believe whether you want to or not. It's a passive thing. In fact, even faith is the gift, they say. So, uh, we disagree, and I'm going to explain why. But I want to just be upfront with you that if you struggle with election and making sense of it, you're not alone. Okay, a lot of people do. And, and I'm going to suggest tonight that it's one of those biblical antinomies, meaning a biblical truth that is contrary to logic, that we must simply accept. And I'm going to give you examples of several others in Scripture. They're actually all over the place, and we, we don't really stop to think about, wait a minute, how can both of these things be true? And, and we, we just sort of accept them without really thinking about it. But boy, it comes to election, you know, uh, it, it, people really have a reaction. And so, Whenever people hear me say I believe in election, almost immediately they'll say, oh, so you don't believe in free will? And I go, no, I believe in free will too. Wait a minute. How can you believe in both? Well, I believe the Bible teaches both. Not that simple. I mean, I'm sorry, but uh, I'm not trying to sound trite or sarcastic or belittling of those who differ with that, but I, I, I have to let the Bible speak. It's like uh, one of my mentors, Bob Leitner, used to say. He died not long ago. He said, we must be biblicists above all else and let the Bible speak. And you know, when we overplay free will, remember my uh, continuum here, when we overplay free will, we become an Arminian who says that we can earn our own salvation, we can lose our own salvation, we can give back our own salvation. Basically, we're in complete control. God doesn't really play much of a part. But if we overplay election or sovereignty, then we make man passive, and, and man is just kind of a completely passive agent. He does nothing, and yet more than 160 times, the New Testament is quite clear that we have to believe the gospel to be saved. We have to be, we, we get saved by faith. That's the one condition. And so um, I get into all of this in getting the gospel wrong. A lot of people have picked this book up in the last uh, few weeks since we started this series, which I'm really encouraged by. And I've also given away a few copies to some folks that asked for it. Um, but this is a comprehensive overview of the biblical doctrine of salvation. 
and uh, we have copies out on the table if you want to pick one up, uh, and, or you can pick one up online. But if you do, uh, feel free to use the coupon code GOSPEL, all caps, because that will get you a 25% discount. So we talked about total depravity. Uh, we saw that the Bible does not teach that total depravity means total inability. That's what they say it means, uh, but it doesn't. It means uh, separation. Total depravity just simply means that because we're dead, we are separated from God. It doesn't mean we lose the capacity to believe or to think or to reason. Uh, we, we can still believe. We can still do the one thing that the Bible tells us we have to do to be saved. But total depravity does mean that we are separated from a holy God. In fact, when we read in Ephesians uh, 2 that he made us uh, alive who were once dead in our trespasses and sins, the word dead, as we talked about in Scripture, always means separation. It's a technical term. So whenever you see the word die or death or dead, you should always ask yourself, what separation is taking place here? Physical death is a separation from the physical body, of the physical body from the immaterial part of man. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, or to be absent from the body is to be in a physical place of torment. I mean, a literal place of torment. Uh, spiritual separation just means that we were once right with God, had access to God, in, in um, reconciled to God, but now we've become separated. We're enemies of God, as Paul says in Romans 5. Uh, and there's all kinds of other t ways in which the term death is used, but it always means separation. It does not mean inability. So when Calvinists say dead men can't believe, they cannot point to a single scripture that says an unbeliever does not have the ability to believe. It's not there. All they do to prove their point is say, well, man is dead before he's saved. Completely agree. But how do you define dead? They then define dead as unable to believe, which is a theological construction not found in Scripture. So if someone can show me from Scripture how an unbeliever does not have the capacity to believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for his sins, I'll concede the point, but it's not there. Um, and no one's been able to find it. So then we looked at unconditional election, and we kind of, I won't go back and quote uh, some Calvinists uh, in their definition of this, just for the sake of time, but that's what we'll always start with, with each one of these five points of Calvinism, is what do they say it means? Because I want to be fair. I don't want to put words in their mouth. And we showed last week that Calvinists insist that God has elected some to go to heaven and some to go to hell, and that election is completely uh, unconditional. And uh, the individual has nothing to do with it. Uh, God has chosen some to be saved, and those whom he has chosen to be saved are forced to believe through no conscious volition of their own. And uh, they say, as I said, faith is an involuntary response. Uh, and God has also determined those that will perish. And so, in other words, Calvinists say there are no conditions for God giving salvation and none for our receiving it. It just happens. So we want to now ask the question, what does the Bible say? And as I mentioned last week, there is actually one condition for eternal life, and that's faith. Again and again and again. For example, when the jailers in Philippi asked Paul and Silas, what must we do to be saved? What did, what did they say? Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Paul did not say, well, cross your fingers. <laughs> if you're elect, we'll see you there. No, he gave a condition. What must I do? is the question. The answer plainly is believe. Jesus said it this way when he was talking to Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him 
should not perish but have everlasting life. Again, one of the 160 uh, times. Or a couple of verses later, uh, we see in verse uh, 18, Jesus says, He who believes in Him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Why is he condemned? Because he's not elect? No, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten uh, Son of God. In Romans 5, Paul describes it doctrinally this way, that we are justified by faith, and that's how we have peace with God. We're justified by faith. In chapter 4, verse 5, he says, But to him who does not work, remember, you, know, you cannot work for salvation. It's not by works of righteousness which we do, but according to his mercy he saved us. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So uh, Paul says, not, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is what is accredited righteousness. It's called imputation. Uh, Fred and I were talking about this. Did you get that uh, sheet that I sent you last night? Yeah. Okay. So uh, we were talking about how when you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again for your sins, that faith instantly causes Christ's righteousness to be credited to your account, to be imputed to you is the biblical term. So, again, this goes back to what it means to be dead, and Romans 5 makes this clear. Before we express faith, we have Adam's uh, sin imputed to us, and we're under the penalty of sin. When we believe the gospel, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, and now we meet the standard of holiness that God demands. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 5:48, "Unless you're perfect, you'll never get into the kingdom." So, guess what? Everybody in this room has to be perfect. Now, that means positionally perfect, not practically perfect. Nobody, as long as we're still in the flesh, can be practically perfect because we still have that old fleshly nature inside us, rearing its head, and and we have the fruit of the flesh that sometimes manifests itself: anger, jealousy, covetousness, pride. You name it. But we positionally, in terms of our identity, if you've trusted in Christ and Him alone for salvation, then when God looks at you, He sees the blood of Christ running through your veins. He sees the righteousness of Christ, and you now meet the standard. That's, that's positional truth. And we, we've got to understand the distinction between position and, and practice. Ideally, our practice should reflect who we are in Christ. That's the goal. Every believer ought to live out their new life in Christ and produce fruit of the Spirit, but sometimes we don't. And, and that's, uh, you know, unfortunate. And to the degree that we are able to walk in the Spirit and not after the flesh more consistently, that's a reflection of our maturity and, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, our spiritual growth process. Um, but this idea here is that it's only by faith that we can have that position in Christ. So again, you see a cause and effect here. But to a Calvinist, somehow you're already declared righteous, and then you believe. I don't understand how that can be. How can faith be the result when the Bible so plainly makes it the cause? Uh, in John 6, 47, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. So we're going to look at a few more passages tonight. But what I suggested uh, last week is that rather than focusing on the unconditionality, allegedly, of election, we might want to focus on the unmerited nature of it, or the undeserved uh, nature of it. 
because we understand election, but the fact of the matter is, in e outside of time, space, and matter, in eternity past, when God, the, the God, the, the Creator of the universe, e eternally existed in three persons: God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Before time began, before He spoke the world into existence, that's when election took place. We don't live there. We can't even comprehend that. We live here in the realm of time, space, and matter. We think linearly. We see cause and effect. And so for us to somehow try to take election and, and somehow rip open the universe of time, space, and matter like some kind of a portal and slip it into our discussion and make sense of it is, is nonsensical. And that's the reason people struggle with it, is that you cannot reconcile election and free will. And Romans 11, as we've looked at a couple of times, makes that plain, that God's judgments are past our finding out, and we just want to just trust Him for it. So I'm content to accept election, and I'm going to give you some reasons why tonight, uh, but I also feel like we must accept uh, free will, and that's the realm that we function in. So when I go to share the gospel with someone, the furthest thing from my mind is, is this person elect or not? I don't even, it doesn't even cross my mind. It's not even on my radar because the Bible never tells it to be on, tells us for it to be on our radar. The Bible tells us to share the gospel. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so, you know, you've got to hear the gospel in order to believe it. Well, in order to hear it, there's got to be a preacher, Romans 10. And so that's our task. And we'll leave the rest of it up to God. Uh, but I will concede the point, And this is, again, where some dispensationalists and non-Calvinists kind of chafe a little bit. But I'll concede the point that when all is said and done and this old earth is destroyed, time, space, and matter no longer exist. We live in a realm of eternity with no night, no darkness, no sea, all of that. Uh, in, the, in the final analysis, only elect people will be in heaven and there won't be a single elect person in hell. I, I mean, I, that seems clear enough. But that doesn't matter for the now. Uh, we're living now. And so we just have to take God's word uh, at uh, its face value for what it says. So, as I mentioned last week, uh, you know, election is undeserved, it's unmerited. God brings the gospel, and we have to believe it. God gives eternal life, we're the ones that receive it. God accomplishes our salvation, we have to accept it. God offers forgiveness, we are the ones that obtain it. There's clearly a cause and effect. It's not universal, not everyone on the earth is saved. Uh, everyone on the earth could be saved if they believe the gospel, but clearly not everybody does. Many reject the gospel. In fact, uh, Paul plainly says in Romans 10, or uh, it might be 11, let me look. Uh, he, uh, in that whole section, they always kind of run together. Uh, no, it's, it is in Romans 10, verse 16. He says, speaking of unbelieving Jews, the ones who crucified the Messiah, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For the, Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Quoting from Isaiah 53. So, you know, clearly some people don't believe the gospel. But the fact is, God desires all to be saved. Uh, undeserved election means that God elects man without regard to that man's merit. Absolutely true. In fact, there's nothing we can do to merit God's grace. And election is an act of God's grace. Uh, but the fact is, God wants all men to be saved. Look at 1 Timothy 2.4. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Um, or 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish. So the universal call of whosoever will may come is a bona fide offer. And 
again, as we've looked at uh, previously, when Calvinists look at those passages, they say, uh, God is not willing that any elect should perish, or God desires that all elect men come to be saved. And they, they, they miss the point. Um, but the, 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 what this comes down to in trying to understand how the Bible can teach both is, first of all, recognizing that God has revealed himself to mankind through the written word. It's, it's his special revelation of mankind for a period of about 1,500 years. 40 different human authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit penned the words to this book in three different languages originally, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And the result is everything we need for life and godliness. And so this book is the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. So we don't have some external standard of logic that we then impose upon this book and anything that seems illogical we reject. I mean, that's what happened with the rise of higher criticism and liberalism in the early, uh, late 19th and early 20th centuries. When, you know, Darwinian thought and secular humanistic thought came along and said, well, there's no way that, you know, a, a man can survive inside a fish for three days, so that must not be true. Or there's no way a global flood could happen. Now, that must not be true. And there's no way that God spoke the world out of, into existence out of nothing ex nihilo, uh, and so that must just be this big allegory, and there's no, you know, no way that the Red Sea could have really parted, it must have just been low tide, and they began to strip away anything that they didn't think uh, was consistent with logic, but the fact of the matter is, it's kind of like saying, um, you know, with, with all of God's attributes, if we were to say that God, that, you know, have you ever heard someone say this? Justice demands that God do such and such. You ever heard that? Or something similar? That's, that's an inaccurate statement. Because that implies that God is accountable to an external standard. The right statement is, whatever God does is just. Justice is defined by what God does. God is not defined by some external standard of justice. And God likewise is not defined by some external standard of logic. And so I totally understand... That's kind of an ironic choice of words. But I, I get that uh, free will and election are not inherently consistent. But the Bible teaches that. So we accept it. And I'm going to show you a few others here in a moment that seem contradictory. But I think it would be good to review uh, the passage that I frequently refer to uh, and occasionally quote. But let's just... Uh, let's just master the obvious here and quote it once again from Romans chapter 11 so that we have a biblical basis for my presupposition that says we're, we're not always able to understand everything God does. We just must accept it. But in Romans 11 verse 33 we read, Oh the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Now listen how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Now see what that's saying there? Nobody is going to sort of counsel God on how to do things or what to think or what's logical. You know, nobody can do that because God is God. If he did it, it's logical. Uh, or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid him. 
For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. In other words, God exists outside of time. And there are a lot of things that we read in Scripture that are God's way through the human authors of telling us a little bit about himself in anthropomorphic ways. In other words, he, he'll say things like the Lord's long arm of mercy or the Lord's you know, gathered you under his wings or the Lord's uh, has heard your cry. And it uses human characteristics so that we can understand God. But we need to understand that God is spirit and God is eternal. And God is not subject to the human rules of time, space, matter, and logic that we uh, tend to think. So, you know, biblical antinomies are all over the place in uh, God's Word. And that's where God's election and man's free will uh, fall into that uh, category. It's a field of systematic theology, a category uh, called a biblical antinomy. It's when two truths that appear to be contradictory from man's point of view are, taught, are both taught in Scripture. Uh, so, for example, the idea of a virgin having a child. I mean, that's a medical impossibility. Uh, that's a logical impossibility. But how many of you believe in the virgin birth? So you believe, whether you knew it or not, in at least one biblical antinomy. Uh, the concept of the Trinity. The reason so many uh, heretics and unorthodox religions reject the Trinity is because it doesn't make sense. How can you be three and one at the same time? And so a lot of false religions out there have redefined God into one God and three manifestations. Like sometimes he comes as Christ, sometimes he comes as the Holy Spirit, sometimes he's God. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches he is simultaneously all three, yet he is one. Three but one. That's an antinomy. Um, or the hypostatic union. Uh, you know, people misunderstand the incarnation of Christ and a lot of uh, false teachings that surround uh, Christmas and the, the birth of Christ, one of which is that uh, Christ became the Son at the incarnation. The Bible teaches differently. The Bible teaches He's the eternal Son of God. <laughs> he didn't become the Son when he, Mary gave birth. He just came in human form. Uh, another one is that when Christ, after living uh, his 37 years on earth and then ascending after the resurrection back to the right hand of God that he, he was human on earth and now he's set aside his humanity and now he's only divine. Because again, how can you be 100% God and 100% human at the same time? You know, I mean, even if you were public schooled and had a public school math teacher, you know that you, you can be 50-50 or 70-30 or 80-20, but you can't be 100-100. That's just a mathematical impossibility. But Jesus is. And the Bible teaches that uh, in Hebrews that he's still fully human today. He has to be uh, to be able to be our uh, ultimate sacrifice and intercessor and ultimate high priest sitting at the right hand of God uh, advocating for us. So let me, look, let me show you a few other passages in Scripture that you might have just read right over without recognizing that if you really look at them, they're actually espousing two opposite views. For example... In Acts 2, during Peter's sermon, he said, Him, Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death. So here we have Christ's crucifiers being predetermined by God, yet freely choosing to crucify the Savior. 
I mean, Peter says both. You took by lawless hands and put him to death. Right before that, he says, but it was determined by the, it was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Which is it? Did God make it happen or did these guys choose to do it? Well, it's both. It's both. Uh, or we could look at uh, Revelation 13 where we read Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. But what did Jesus say? I lay down my life and no one takes it from me. So the very cross of Christ is an antinomy. You know, uh, that's why one of the many uh, theological uh, debates that people, you know, students sitting around seminary like to argue about is, uh, you know, like how many angels can dance on the head of the pen, that kind of a thing. They would say, uh, you know, could Christ have called 10,000 angels uh, and avoided the cross? Remember that old song? He could have called 10,000 angels, right? I mean, could he have? Well, I, I don't know. God's word says God determined it before the foundation of the world. <laughs> that would make God wrong, wouldn't it? But yet Jesus says, look, no one takes my life from me. I give it up willingly. Well, which is it? It's both. That's the point. And we accept them as both. I know it's hard to make sense of that because we like everything to be in its nice, neat little box. And Calvinists especially, it's, it's a turnkey operation. You know, you can't have, you know, just part of the flower. It's the full tulip, T-U-L-I-P. And if you reject any notion of it, then they, they really have a problem with that. Um, and so what about this one? Uh, they stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. So Christ's rejection was predetermined by God, yet freely chosen. Right? Well, which is it? It's both. Or Luke 22, And truly the Son of Man uh, goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom is betrayed. In other words, God's going to hold accountable those who rejected Christ and crucified Him, and yet it was all determined. I mean, we see this again and again in the Old Testament. We see God using pagan nations such as you know, Assyria or Babylon as an instrument of discipline in his chosen nation Israel's life. And then he turns around and judges those same nations because they attacked his chosen nation. I mean, it doesn't seem fair, right? But what's the definition of fairness? Whatever God does. Right? Whatever God does. So that's the, the thing to remember is that uh, you know, God is not accountable to some external standard. God is the standard. And so if God did it, it's fair. doesn't mean we're going to understand it. Um, because, you know, as we just read, you know, His judgments are and, and His ways are unsearchable. We don't always understand them. But, uh, and so it is with the election. The concept of God's sovereignty and man's free will are a biblical antinomy. Though they appear to be contradictory, the Bible teaches both. Uh, now, again, Calvinists are very uncomfortable with this notion of an antinomy. They like everything to add up to make sense. There can't be anything left over at the end of the equation. All five points have to uh, you know, be in place because they're interdependent. Um, but you know, I don't think it's necessary to try that hard to put God in that box. You know, I just don't. I, I, I like things to add up to. I'm a very linear thinker and a logical person. And sometimes when things don't make sense, like anybody else, I get frustrated. But we've got to be students of the Scripture first, not students of some type of a uh, system. Uh, so let's look at 
uh, a few other passages that I think support the notion of election, but then we'll look at some that support the notion of free will. Obviously, uh, God's sovereignty is espoused in Psalm 115. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. No argument there. Psalm 135, verse 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deep places. Ephesians chapter 1, this is a key passage um, for election. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And by the way, there's several other passages that speak to this notion of election. And I'm aware that many you know, very well-respected and uh, scholarly dispensationalists that I respect you know, try to take all these passages I'm about to show you and um, make them, they soften them. You know, like what they would say here, let's look at it in Ephesians 1. Uh, we'll start out in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So he's speaking to believers here. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. So what they try to do is say that the part about being holy and, blame, holy and uh, blameless before Him is what He chose. Whereas I believe grammatically that's the result of Him choosing us. See the difference? So, I mean, it's a good argument uh, to have, and it's a one that's rooted in the text, and I respect anyone that tries to defend their view based on a scripture, but you just you go on and on and read this whole passage. You get down to verse 11. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. I mean, it's just hard to, to get around election. But then you go to passages like uh, 1 Thessalonians, just a couple of pages over here. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 4, where, uh, where he says, Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Now you don't have any qualifiers, but he clearly says you've been elected. Now again, they, if they're determined, if no pun intended, but if they're determined to get rid of election the same way Calvinists are determined to get rid of free will, then they're going to say, well, yeah, we're all elect. We're elect to be in Christ or we're, you know, elect for some purpose. But it doesn't mean he chose us for salvation. But, I mean, that's a stretch. That's, I think, bringing your uh, theology to the text. Let's just let the text speak. In Second Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verse 13, he says, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation. Wow, sounds like God believes in election, doesn't it? I mean, it does to me. And again, I'm not trying to be uh, snippy. I mean, there are good, good theological teachers that would take this a different way, but I, maybe I'm too simple. Um, yeah, well, either of you. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, so the question is about Matthew 24, 22, where unless those days are shortened, uh, no flesh would be saved but for the elect's sake. So the, the words always have to be defined in context. And the term elect often, especially in the Old Testament, refers to God's chosen nation. So, and in Romans 9 through 11, same thing. So you see God chose Israel. That's what Romans 9 is all about, you know, Jacob versus Esau and so forth. And God's the potter. He can choose whoever he wants. 
But that same analogy for choosing Israel, I mean, think about it. Why, why Israel? Why that little corner of real estate over there in the Fertile Crescent? You know, why not? Why didn't he choose Brazil or something, or what is now called Brazil, right? So, so the elect in, in the Olivet Discourse, which is the passage you're quoting from, is talking about Israel. It's, it's all about the future for Israel. The, he, he's talking about the 70th week of Daniel. He even quotes Daniel by name, that seven-year tribulation. And this is Israel, the nation's final opportunity to receive the king when he comes back to establish the kingdom. So the church is not mentioned there. The church hasn't even been formed yet. This the Olivet Discourse takes place on Wednesday night before the Upper Room Discourse and, and on Thursday and certainly before the betrayal and uh, crucifixion and burial on Friday. And so it, elect there doesn't mean elect individuals, but elect nation. So yeah, you know, it's not a technical term. The passages I'm showing here are talking about individual election. As, as I said, you know, when, when Paul writes to the Thessalonian believers in the church age, and he says, uh, uh, thanks to God always for you, brethren, uh, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. I mean, again, that that's seems clear enough that he's talking here about uh, eternal salvation. Uh, or Titus, so let's flip over a couple of pages to the pastoral epistle, Titus 1, Paul and verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. Who, who are God's elect? I mean, it's just, there's a theme in Scripture of election. And while that makes some people uncomfortable, and it should if you camp out there, if that's all you obsess about, well then, okay, I can understand why you might be a little nervous. But accept it, just like we accept the hypostatic union, we accept the virgin birth, accept it, and then you know, live out what so plainly is taught in the epistles about sharing the gospel with others, if you don't know the Lord, believing the gospel to be saved, and so on and so forth. So uh, I just wanted to you know, take a moment to defend you know, election. Now, you know, Calvinists would kind of trim out that little last 10 minutes of this message, and they would agree wholeheartedly with it. Uh, the problem is they don't read the rest of the whole counsel of God, which clearly teaches that man is free to choose or reject the gospel. So let's look at some passages that speak to free will. Uh, let's look uh, at the same context as what Judy referenced a moment ago, and that is uh, the Olivet Discourse. This is that same Wednesday. Jesus has cursed the temple, overturned the money tables, uh, money changers' tables. He's uh, uh, cursed the fig tree. And then he, uh, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to you. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Now, does that sound like an indictment? Uh, against someone who could have been willing but wasn't? Absolutely. Otherwise, it makes no sense. If they didn't have the choice, if they didn't have free will, then Jesus' emphatic and emotional, remember in Hebrew when you repeat a word like that in the Hebrew culture, Jerusalem, Jerusalem is showing great emotion and sorrow um, and you know sadness. And uh, why would Jesus be so emotional about it if in fact they didn't have a choice? Why wouldn't he say, how often I wanted to gather you as a chick 
gathers her chicks under her a chicken or hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not elect and had no choice, so I understand. <laughs> Is that what God said? I mean, that what Jesus said? No. Or how about this? Let's be more specific. That's about Israel. Let's talk about individuals. In John, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. So again, you see, you know, Jesus is giving you an option. And if you don't take that option, you're going to be, you're going to die in your sin, as he, he says elsewhere in John 5:24, I think it is, or 8:24, and, um, and, and you're under the wrath of God apart from believing in him. Uh, or Paul in 2 Thessalonians says he's going to take flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. Wow, that seems harsh for someone who didn't have a choice to believe the gospel. It, it's implicit. You know, if you disobey the gospel, you could have, you must have been able to obey the gospel. Otherwise, is it really disobedience? Right? I mean, think about it. I know that's kind of heady, but just just think through it. I mean, if you if you're going to be held accountable for disobedience to the gospel, don't you have to have been able to obey? Right? You uh, see the same phrase in Hebrews 5. Having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Well, you know, they must have the opportunity to obey him if that's the standard, right? To get eternal life, you got to obey the gospel. Yeah. Yeah, I think I forgot to go on to you. Judy's was so profound, I was just left speechless. So, Calvinists basically, from what I understand, they don't, they don't believe we have free will. Correct. We're humming along and God decides what he wants to do. Correct. We have no free will that just happens. So, how do they explain Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? So, the question is, if Calvinists don't believe we have free will, how do they explain Adam and Eve in the Garden? Well, as we quoted a couple of sessions ago, two or three sessions ago, quoted John Piper, quoted R.C. Sproul Jr., they think God predetermined that Adam and Eve would sin. God caused them to sin. God is the author of sin. God caused Hitler to kill all those Jews. God, it was, part, it was God's will that the Holocaust happened. They actually said that. And they don't believe in Satan? They believe God intended for Lucifer to fall. That was God's plan. Everything that happens, God did. It's, it's a deterministic uh, theological view. So, this is, I'm having, a, I'm having a hard time being drawn into this argument because of the word. But as I look at, a, with my little 32K, as I look at election and free will, I'm not elect until I choose Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and I him so, let me repeat that because that's really good. He said, "In my the way I look at it, I'm not elect until I choose Jesus Christ as my Savior." Okay, go on. Okay, so that makes me part of the elect, even though I still have a sinful nature. I still struggle here on earth until I'm taken home. Yeah. Okay, and when I'm taken home. I'm definitely part of the elect. Okay, right. So when I'm taken home, then I'm definitely part of the elect. So 
Uh, I, I think that's a great way to conceptualize it, and I'm going to nuance it just a, a little bit. But the first part of what you said, uh, you know, Bob Leitner, again, i quoting him uh, 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 twice tonight. I had him twice as a professor, once in my master's and once in my Ph.D. So I got used to during those seven years of my Ph.D. studies and eight years of my master's study quoting him whenever I could in case he was listening, then he'd give me a good grade. But it's too late now. I mean, I'm not in school anymore, and he's with the Lord. So he probably doesn't really care. He could care less what I'm saying right now. But anyway, it's a profound statement. He said, there's not a single place in Scripture where uh, the uh, elect are differentiated, that, let's see, where God uh, differentiates the elect in their unregenerate state. In other words, any, let me say this, I butchered that, I'm glad he's not listening. Um, uh, in other words, the only time that God uses the term elect of individuals, it's after they've already been saved, including all the passages we looked at. He's writing to believers, he refers to them elect. So there's not, how does he say it? There's not a single place in scripture where the where unregenerate man is called, you know, elect. So that's what we're saying is that, you know, you, you you don't know who's elect until, you know, you get saved. Then yeah, you can say you're elect, but that's not what causes it. So you know that's why why I would nuance it. I would I believe that election is in the eternity past before I was even born, and that's what we just read in scripture. But again, okay, fine, we'll accept that truth and we'll put it on the shelf and believe it because God says it. But here on earth, what matters is time, space, and matter, cause and effect. And what the Bible plainly teaches, even though it sounds like it's a contradiction to election, is that we must believe in order to be saved. So, you know, I, I, I agree with you completely. And then, that, and then you kind of said what I said a moment ago, is that at the end of the day, when you get to heaven, then it's clear. It's like, I think it was Spurgeon, and he's a Calvinist, so, but he was also a good evangelist, and he, he had a lot of powerfully brilliant things to say. But I think it was him who talked about how when you enter the gates of heaven, there's a sign over the pearly gates that says, whosoever will may come. And after you've entered and you look back over your shoulder, on the inside it says, welcome all elect. You know, And I think that's kind of in eternity one way to think about it. But I don't want to suggest that somehow we need to determine who has an E marked on their forehead here and now. Because I believe, based on Scripture, that all 7.5 billion people in the world could be saved if they would simply believe the gospel. Yeah. Correct. Only God knows who's saved and who's not. And that person knows. Right. 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 And by, when you say I'm having a tough time being drawn in the argument, you're saying it seems kind of irrelevant to you? Like, what's the big deal? Yeah. I agree. I've made my point. We're dismissed. <laughs> no, I mean, that's the whole point I'm trying to make, is that it really is. It's, it's the stuff that theological schisms and schisms are made of. And, but, but where it really becomes an issue, and I think it will become relevant, when we get to the irresistible and the perseverance aspects, because that is very practical, and it has a very detrimental, the teaching of Calvinism has a very detrimental effect on our day-to-day -day living as believers, and you'll see why. But you're right, this discussion of you know, election, in my mind, 
since you cannot reconcile election and free will, and since I believe the Bible teaches both, and I know that good people disagree on that, uh, but I'm patient. I'm willing to wait till we all get to heaven for them to agree with me. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I don't think it matters. I don't think it's something we should argue about. Gary. I think Yeah. So, in my mind, these people, God's people, are the elect that will accept the message, will accept the gospel. And he's telling Paul, stick around, because these people need to hear the gospel so they can be saved. Even though they're my people, yeah. they need to hear the gospel. Yeah, so great comment by Gary. By the way, I, I haven't mentioned this yet tonight, but. Those of you watching my live stream, I, I apologize that when we have questions, there's an awkward period of silence, usually 10 or 20 seconds. Uh, but I do always try to repeat the question, so bear with us. We haven't dropped, you haven't dropped your connection or anything. It's just really no other way to do it, at least in our current setup here, uh, to be able to uh, capture the questions on the tape. So uh, I always try to repeat it. And, and Gary mentioned that Acts chapter 18, when Paul is in Corinth, and uh, he has a vision, and God encourages him in his vision not to be afraid but to speak boldly because he has many people in that city so that's in gary's mind that's a good example of where kind of free will and sovereignty are kind of both alluded to and i think there are plenty of places in scripture where they're both referenced that's my point is that it teaches both but uh, you know the, the bible is clear that Though the only requirement for eternal life is faith alone in Christ alone. And, you know, we've looked at many, many passages that, that say that. So you cannot, you know, if you, if you try to reconcile election and free will, you end up doing what Calvinists do, which, which they say, well, then clearly, since your you know, election is all that matters, you didn't choose to believe, even though the Bible clearly says people can choose uh, and says that you have to choose. So that, must, that choice must have been made for you. And that's where they get into this whole idea of faith being a gift, which, again, is not taught in Scripture either. But, yeah. A couple of passages. Um, Romans 8, 28 through 30. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be firstborn among the brethren. And whom he predestined, uh, these he also called, and whom he called, these also justified, and whom he justified, these also glorified. Yeah. Uh, first, or Second Timothy uh, one, verse nine. Okay. Second Timothy one. The first passage, which we'll come back to in a second, was Romans eight twenty-eight to thirty-two, and then Second Timothy what? Uh, one nine. Okay. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, and according to, and not according to uh, our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, uh, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from eternity. Yeah. And uh, 
Christ in, in Jesus in John says, you have not chosen me, but I chose you. Absolutely, yeah. So are these part of what you're talking yeah. about, the confusing things? <laughs> well, no, they're not confusing at all. They're just talking about election. Um, I would point out that uh, 1 Timothy, uh, Timothy 1.9, when he says, who saved us and called us, well, again, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose, doesn't mean because of his own purpose or that that was the means of salvation. It's just in accordance with, right? We know because there's 160 passages that tell us what the cause is. What's the only way we can be saved? By faith, right. So, but yeah, I was going to mention Romans Eight, a minute ago when I was looking at a few passages on election, but I thought I had kind of, you know, made the point, so I just skipped it. Plus, I take this passage a little bit different than, than a lot of people. You notice he doesn't use the word election, right? And election in, is different in Scripture than predestination, which is different from foreknowledge. They're all different terms, and they have slightly different meanings. So let's go back to Romans 8.28. Uh, and following, and I'll explain what how I believe this should be handled. And we know that all things work together to good for those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. No problem there. doesn't say all things are good, right? But all things work together for good. In other words, God never works evil. God's always working good, even though bad things happen in this fallen world. Somehow He's going to, it's going to all be a part of His purpose. But notice verse 29, For whom He foreknew, He also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his son. So predestination has to do with, you know, our identity and who we are, not the fact that we're chose for eternal life before the foundation of the world, but sort of the result of that, that, that he's predestined us to be conformed to the image of son. And then he goes on to say, whom he predestined, these he also called. No question that there's a universal call. Some receive it, some don't, but it's a true statement that anybody who believes the gospel was first called. Right? You can't hear without a preacher. Romans 10 makes that clear. So that's all he's saying. We're called first. That's for sure. Um, whom he called, he justified. And, and he doesn't, he's just giving here, this is called the golden chain of salvation. He's not giving a detailed account here of how we get saved. He's just explaining theologically what has happened. So we know from many other passages in Romans specifically that the way you go from being called to being justified is by faith. For example, two, two, three chapters earlier in Romans 5, he says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. But So he's just kind of giving us a high-level summary here. We were called, we were justified, and by the way, we've also been glorified. Now, no offense, but nobody here looks like they've got their glorified bodies so what does he mean? Because that's past tense. All of these are in the aorist tense in Greek, which means a, con a continuing result of a past action, that it's, that it's as good as done, in other words. So notice Paul goes from justified to glorified, because in fact, once you're justified, you're already as good as glorified. You still have to live out your days here until you go the way of all flesh or until we meet the Lord in the air. But you're, you're as good as glorified. It's, it's a word, done deal. It's the word predestined. Yeah, it's just all part of God's plan of the ages. God knows yeah. who's going to be saved. Well, that's foreknowledge. Okay. Foreknowledge is God knows ahead of time. Election is God chose ahead of time. And predestination is what he does with those he chose. So they're three different terms, three different meanings. If they're all related, they're all correlated, but they're not synonyms at all. Um, 
But what I want you to see, which is interesting, and again, so yes, you're right, Paul, that all of these verses that you pointed to are a proof text for you know, election, the doctrine of election, and I have no problem with that. Um, but since you brought it up, you know, the, the call justified glorified is a very powerful passage for eternal security. Because once you've been justified, you're already glorified. Now, you may not receive that body yet. You may not be in heaven yet, but you're glorified. It's a done deal. By the way, what is left out of this golden chain here? Sanctification. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the gradual, the way it's most often used in Scripture, is the progressive, gradual setting apart into Christ-likeness of the believer. So from the moment you get saved and the Spirit takes up residence, we are to conform to the image of Christ. We're to follow the Spirit's prompting. We're to walk in the Spirit and not after the flesh. And it's a journey. And however long we're on this earth, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 70 years, 80 years, someone gets saved as an 8-year-old, they could be a Christian for 80 or 90 years. And that whole process of spiritual growth is the process of putting on the new man, putting off the old man, and growing mature in your faith. And that's what we call theologically, and it's called most of the time that when the term sanctification is used, it's called sanctification. Paul doesn't mention it here. Why not? Because sanctification in the life of a believer is not guaranteed. We can quench the Spirit. We can grieve the Spirit. We cannot yield to the Spirit. We cannot walk in the Spirit. There's so many things that in our flesh we can do to inhibit our sanctification process. It's not automatic. If it were automatic, we'd all be perfect. <laughs> but it's not automatic. There is a cooperative effort in the spiritual growth process between the believer's yieldedness and the Spirit's convicting work. The Spirit does not force us to obey any more than the Spirit forced us to believe. We choose to believe as a believer. We now are born again, a new nature. We have the Spirit's indwelling, and we ought to walk in the Spirit. But we're not forced to. And, and that's the reason that a believer who gets away from the Lord, gets out of the Word, caters to the flesh, can really spiral out of control very quickly and, and become an apostate and become shipwrecked. And the Bible speaks of believers, you know, that did that. Hymenaeus and Alexander, for example. So uh, it's not good. It's not certainly not something that we would hope happens in our life or anybody else's life. We hope that as we read the Word of God and follow the Spirit and be involved in a local Bible teaching church, that we're going to produce fruit and grow and so forth. But I just want to point out here that, you know, you go from being called and then, of course, believing the gospel, which then makes you justified, to being glorified. That much is guaranteed. The sanctification process is largely determined by how we respond to the Spirit of God in our life. And we can quench and grieve that Spirit. Backsliding. Would be backsliding. That's another biblical term. Absolutely, backsliding. So a couple more passages. I know we're out of time here, but I want to just drive home the point of free will. I think we've sufficiently shown that Scripture teaches election. Uh, and, uh, but I want to show, we're now showing that God's Word teaches free will. In John 5, Jesus is speaking to individuals. This is not about Israel, but individuals. And he says, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Well, it sounds like a group of people that had free will, doesn't it? Right. Or Stephen says to the Jewish leaders in Acts chapter 7, it ended up getting him stoned. 
you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Wait a minute, I thought you couldn't resist the Holy Spirit. I thought if He wants you to do it, you're going to do it, right? See, that's their view, both on the justification side and the sanctification side. Remember, the next point that we're going to, uh, let's see, not the next point, I can't spell tulip, but the fourth point of Calvinism is irresistible grace. And we're going to come back and look at some of these same passages because they believe that if the Spirit of God is calling you to salvation, you cannot resist it. You're going to be saved, period. But the Bible teaches you can resist it. Those who end up in hell in the darkness of blackness forever, like we talked about in 2 Peter 2, it's because they did not obey the gospel. Right? Uh, and, and so many of these other ones, you, you know, they weren't willing to come to him. They did not obey the gospel. So I would prefer... Sometimes the, uh, the question is, did not obey or did not accept? Sometimes the Bible uses, as I mentioned, obeying the gospel. Like, for example, in 2 Thess 1.8. Those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to obey? Well, it means to believe. You know. So, so the, the Spirit of God is saying, whosoever will let him come, and you're going to either obey and do that, or you're going to reject it. So it's just obedience here is just another way of saying believe. But, you know, we think obey and we think do right or do wrong. Well, I mean, that's true. It's, it's right to believe the, and accept the free gift of eternal life. Uh, but you do see sometimes this term obey. The vast majority of times in Scripture when it's talking about how to have eternal life, it's faith, you know, trust, believe, or the English words are all synonyms. It's all one word in Greek, uh, pistuo, believe. But sometimes you see a receive, John 1, 12, to as many as received him, he gave the right to become the children of God. Well, how do you receive him? By faith. Sometimes it's you, you have to obey the gospel. Well, how do you obey the gospel? By believing. So, All right. Um, so let me just see if we can. Now I've got quite a few more things that I want to talk about, about undeserved election. So we'll, we'll pick up with this. Uh, next week but you know god desire to summarize god desires all men to be saved if someone's not saved it's because of his own free will he chose not to accept the offer of eternal life the free gift that was freely offered and has to be freely received um, again the task of reconciling god's sovereignty and man's free will is unnecessary because god's worth plainly teaches both but not only is it unnecessary it's impossible uh, because we don't have the mind of god as we've said all right, well, let me pray, and we will be dismissed. Father, thank you again for uh, this time uh, tonight, and I pray that as we looked at these passages of Scripture, it would be your word that really pierces hearts and uh, minds and helps people think and, and grow and really uh, meditate on these things. And uh, I pray that uh, you would give us wisdom and help us to just appreciate you more and trust you more as we read your word and learn more about you. In Jesus' name we pray.